0: We're ready to start good afternoon everybody a very warm welcome to you all my name is boncha tasmini and i'm a visiting fellow at the middle east center at the lse i'm delighted to chair the center's final event this term the launch of dr jessica watkins paper iran in iraq the limits of smart power amidst public protest jessica will present her paper and dr annie Sebastiani tabrizi will act as discussant. So let's get started with some basic housekeeping points. The running order for the proceedings will be a little over 15 minutes for our speaker and 10 minutes for our discussant leaving time afterwards for the Q&A session. If you'd like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. I will then address them to the speakers. Please note that the event will be recorded. So I'm delighted to introduce our speakers Dr. Jessica Watkins is a research officer at the LSE's Middle East Center. She works on the DFID sponsored conflict research program and her research focuses on regional and domestic drivers of conflict and peace in Iraq and Syria. Jessica has a BA from Cambridge University in Arabic and in French. She holds a master's in international relations from the war studies department at King's College London, and a PhD on civil policing in Jordan, also from the War Studies Department. I'm also pleased to welcome our discussant, Anissa Bassili Tabrizi, who is Senior Research Fellow at the International Security Studies Department at RUSI. Her research is concerned with security and geopolitics in the Middle East, with a particular focus on Iran and Iraq's foreign and domestic policies, drivers of radicalization and drones proliferation. She has nearly a decade of experience in international relations and security in the Middle East, working in academia, think tanks, and consultancies, including King's College London, the European Council on Foreign Relations, Oxford Research Group, and various international consultancy firms. So, without keeping you any longer, I'll turn the virtual floor over to Jessica. Uh,
1: thanks very much, Conche. Um... So I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes, Um, so the paper that I'm launching talks about the main ways that Iran has projected non-coercive influence in Iraq, primarily through forms of cultural outreach since 2003, Um, and it also reflects on how the UK could or should respond to popular Iraqi expressions of anti-Iranian sentiment, Uh, and these have been particularly prominent since the protest movement began last October. And perhaps against popular expectations they've continued beyond the U.S. assassinations of Qasim Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis in January and so I'll come to some of the findings and the recommendations of the of the paper shortly and as a spoiler alert um, I'm skeptical about the merits of the U.S. or other external actors taking direct military action against Iranian interests in Iraq, except under instruction of the Iraqi government, but I want to just take a minute to reflect on on the philosophy, if you like, of um, the idea behind smart power in the title of the paper, as it applies to Iranian behavior in Iraq and the wider region, um, and how that connects to U.S.-Iran relations. So smart power is a modified version of soft power, and soft power has been a a very popular concept over the past 30 years thanks to Joseph Nye who used it to refer to how a country gets other countries to want what it wants by attracting them rather than coercing them to obey. And typically soft power includes public diplomacy and cultural initiatives, but it excludes military action and economic incentives or sanctions. And Nye thought of soft power primarily with reference to the US, but it's subsequently been used uh, to analyze state foreign policies globally. Even so, a lot of academics have picked tolls in the concept, not least because uh, in practice it's often very difficult to disaggregate coercive from persuasive powers in, in the way that Nye suggested. So smart power was Nye's sort of new and improved concept and he used it to refer to combining hard military and soft persuasive powers and foreign policy. Um, and it was a popular catchphrase during the Obama administration. Clearly, now I didn't think about smart power, primarily applying to Iran, but I use it in this paper because integrating coercive and persuasive and also economic forms of power is exactly what the Islamic Republic does, as a matter of course in its regional foreign policy, and as a function of extreme pragmatism. Um, and the supreme leader has described it as smart power abroad in terms of strategic depth, saying that Iran has to use all the capabilities at its disposal. So Iran has been much more effective than the US or the UK in using smart power in Iraq, and that's partly because the Iraqi political system has come to operate through a combination of identity politics and clientelism and violence, and these are currencies that Iran is familiar with, It's partly because military actions conducted by Iranian allied or client groups are often accompanied by a strong sense of religious or otherwise ideological zeal. And it's partly because members or former members of the IRGC uh, and the Ministry of Intelligence play a significant role in many cultural outreach projects abroad. To the extent that it's really quite difficult in some cases to separate cultural outreach from covert intelligence operations or indeed propaganda. And I know that sounds a bit paradoxical so I'll come back to that, Um, but just to say that the main objection of the international community to Iran's regional foreign policy is that it doesn't play by the rules such as they are of international politics, it frequently violates the supposedly golden rule of non-intervention into the domestic affairs of other states, it conducts diplomacy via private channels as much as through official routes, And it isn't bound by the same standards of accountability or of risk tolerance. In that sense, Iran has enjoyed much more freedom of action in Iraq than other states, but it's also playing a different game, I'd argue. Um, So, Iran's financial and military capabilities are far smaller than the US uh, and uh, it's willing, in terms of government at least, to, to settle for achieving much more limited goals in Iraq than the US is. Its overriding objective is to undermine U.S. hegemony there, even if that means backing factions which have collectively fragmented the Iraqi political scene without providing a clear winner for Iran. So uh, the report looks at Iran's role in promoting religious heritage and tourism, charitable activities, television broadcasting, and its influence over Shia clerical and political actors in Iraq. I won't go into detail here, please do take a look at the report. Uh, But I want to outline three of the points that emerge in the course of the analysis and um, they relate to gauging Iranian popularity in Iraq, understanding the extent to which Iran relies on sectarian politics and understanding the the crossover between Iranian cultural outreach and covert operations. So uh, how popular is Iran in Iraq? to reiterate, Iranian influence in Iraq relies heavily on personal relationships between individual Iranians and Iraqis, even if these relationships are heavily transactional. It doesn't rely on universal popularity amongst Iraqis. But we shouldn't, or we can't just dismiss public opinion, um, because in the past Iraqi public approval has arguably served to embolden Iranian agendas while strong public criticism has certainly led to, an Iran-allied groups, to Iran-allied groups at least changing tack in Iraq. Um, the, the polling data that exists indicates that Iran is a lot more popular in Iraq than elsewhere in the region, but there has been a massive fluctuation in its popularity since 2003, um, and that seems to be strongly related to the role that it's played both against coalition actors and Sunni uh, jihadist militants. Um, so, according to polling by the Mustaqilla Agency, between 2005 and 2019, the all-time low approval rating of Iran was 26% in 2010, and the high point was in 2015, when Iran was prominently backing the anti-ISIL military campaign, when the rating was 86%. Um, A polling similarly in in late 2019 amongst pro-reform Shia protesters in Baghdad and the southern provinces indicated that only 1% trusted Iran compared to 7% who trusted the US and 30% who trusted the UN. And that reinforces the common sentiment um, reflected in the Western media that the protest movement has been heavily anti-Iran. Uh, interviews with some protesters indicate that they view Iran primarily in terms of exploitation of the Mahasis Fi system um, and in terms of actions of the popular mobilization forces that it supports including Qatar al pezbollah and Assad ahl al-Haq which have been implicated in violently suppressing some of the demonstrators but at the same time prior to the assassinations of Soleimani and Abu Mahdi members of those same militias and others also participated in some of the protests And this was a means of subverting the calls from below, if you like. For instance, by complaining that they were also victims of inadequate public services. So the second point addresses um, how much does Iran rely on sectarian politics in its influence-gaining strategies in Iraq? Um, the, the Islamic Republic has always struggled to suppress the reputation that several Arab Sunni regimes have tried to foist on it as being primarily a Shia sectarian ge- geopolitical actor. And that reputation has only grown since the Arab uprisings because of its interventions on the side of loosely categorized Shia actors in Syria, as well as Yemen, Bahrain and Iraq. In in the region as a whole, the Shia are obviously only a small minority and it wouldn't make sense for the regime to purely rely on its Shia credentials. And it doesn't. It's pragmatic about how it attempts to build relationships with states and client um, populations. But obviously in Iraq it's it's different in that around 65% of Iraqis identify as Shia and the two countries have centuries of ties based on uh, pilgrimages to shrines and links between clerical families and seminaries in uh, Najaf and Qom. Clearly, the regime had sought to capitalise on Shi'ism, for example, by restoring shrines, promoting pilgrimages, offering funding and technical expertise to Shi'a charities and Shi'a religious television channels. Um, But Iran has also played a long-standing mediation role with the Kurds, and after ISIL's defeat, it's cultivated links with a new generation of Sunni politicians. Even amongst Iraqi Shia, there's little to suggest widespread adherence to Khomeiniist uh, principles of Wilayat al-Faqih, and um, I would say that Iran has been much more successful tapping into anti-U.S. sentiment than in gaining a following for its religious ideology beyond the scope of its core support groups, at least. So um, the last point, the last point re- relates to how Iran distinguishes between its cultural diplomacy and more covert influence-gaining operations. Obviously, Iran has official forms of public diplomacy conducted through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And equally, some of the activities conducted through the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance are public. But Iran also works indirectly to promote the cultural outreach capabilities of its varied allied um, state or quasi-state groups in the region um, with the heavy involvement of the IRGC In Iraq, a number of the Iran-backed PMFs have developed charitable and media wings Um, and some of them openly acknowledge Iranian support. But they infer that the relationship is uh, more one of receiving technical expertise and operational guidance as opposed to receiving funds from Iran. And that's certainly the line that Iranian officials are pushing partly probably because they want to maintain a degree of distance from client groups, but mainly because there is so much domestic pressure on the Iranian government not to invest in charitable or indeed military operations abroad at a time when the Iranian economy is suffering so badly. Um, And even Iran's best known charity abroad, the Imam Khomeini Relief Fund, is very cagey about issuing details about its funding structure and in fact in Iran the charity's administrators um, indicate that the funds are all raised locally in Iraq. So there's a kind of uh, catch-22 situation in that charitable diplomacy is potentially a powerful means of developing soft power abroad and clearly the Iranian government would want to use charitable activities to that end but is to some extent gagged by the operating conditions and uh, by its own public. So, uh, where does that leave us in terms of recommendations for the UK and particularly in light of the shifting political scene at the centre of Iraqi politics and in fact the turbulence in our own foreign policy agendas right now. Um, Again the report raises a number of specific points, um, so please take a look. But I'm going to kind of merge them into two observations recommendations. The first is that the US and the UK and other international actors just cannot exercise the same kind of smart power in Iraq as Iran does. And it's not just a question of cultural commonalities, it's that they're not neighbors, they don't offer the same sort of financial perks or bribes that Iran does to get things done, and they've demonstrated that their commitment to Iraq rises and falls, whereas Iran is in Iraq for better or for worse, for the long haul, and Iraqis know that. So even if it becomes possible to rein in the influence of certain Iran allied militant groups, And that is a top concern for the new Iraqi government right now. It won't change the fact that Iran has permeated multiple spheres of Iraq's society and um, economy. And I think that's something that the US and the UK have to live with. And they shouldn't be trying to exercise the same kind of influence as as Iran does, of course. Uh, But they should definitely be trying to enhance their own forms of smart power. They expect to be a long term amicable diplomatic and business party to Iraq. So for me, that doesn't mean head-on confrontations uh, with Iran in Iraq. That's definitely not in the interests of Iraqis, and I don't think it's in the interests of the UK or the US either. It means pursuing strategies that weaken the basis for Iran-backed military activities uh, in Iraq. So investment in the private sector, investment in youth employment schemes, youth leadership programs, local policing, um, magnifying the voice of protesters, and if possible, trying to assist their efforts to politically organize, but it, it also means developing long lasting interpersonal relationships with Iraqis, not just at the level of national government, but at the much more local societal level, because I think that we haven't given enough recognition to the value of relationships between individuals and foreign policy in Iraq recently. So um, as a final point, uh, what about the option of taking military action on Iraq, in Iran or Iranian interests in Iraq? Um, so, now that the dust has settled a bit on the assassinations of Soleimani and Abu Mahdi, um, I guess when it happened back in January, my gut, gut instinct was that it was likely to have the opposite effect to that intended. I.e. it would completely discredit the US and Iraq, um, it would crush the protest movement entirely, and um, make it an act of national treachery almost to oppose Iran. In fact, the assassinations certainly did contribute to additional Iraqi pressure on on the US to withdraw troops. And they do now seem to be doing that. Uh, And it also subdued the protests. Um, Although and actually this probably has more to do with Covid restrictions um, than the PMF crackdowns on the protesters. But the demonstrators have proven much more resilient than I guess I would have anticipated and much more courageous. that's for taking Soleimani and Abu Mahdi out of the picture, it has certainly changed things and I, in my view they weren't just implementers. They both had built up extensive networks of personal relations in Iran and Iraq over the course of decades. And by all accounts they were both um, charismatic, they commanded a lot of respect um, with thousands of young militant Shia Iraqis. And their replacements in both cases, So uh, Soleimani's replacement at the head of the Quds Force, doesn't seem to have the same stature and the proposed replacement for Abu Mahdi as the chief of staff of the PMF has been rejected by several of the PMF so maybe the US counts that as a good result but in my view it's uh, rather than reducing the potency of uh, Iran-backed militias it, it has made them just more disparate in their attacks. Um, so I uh, I guess I, I'll probably leave it there I feel like I've Scratch the surface um, and there are lots of things I, I can't address here but I'm going to hand over to Anissa who is going to look at it from a slightly different perspective and of course and welcome all the questions on the areas not covered so thanks very much
2: thank you Jessica um, unless there is any comment from then I will uh, build on what you said and uh, say a few words, uh, building on the arguments that you made on the paper. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that uh, I encourage everyone to read the paper because it's really rich of information, particularly when it comes to uh, the cultural diplomacy aspects of Iran's influence in Iraq, which are often overlooked and I think provide a very significant contribution to to what is already known about Iran's policy in Iraq. Um, I wanted to... Back up in particular one of the arguments that was made in the, argument, in, in the paper by Jessica about uh, whether and how military variation in themselves are likely to eradicate the formal and informal network of influence uh, of Iran and Iraq. And I was going to build exactly from where she left on the killing of uh, Basem Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi uh, back in January. I think back then there was a lot of anticipation and expectation that uh, that killing would uh, shift uh, the Iranian policy and uh, diminish the Iranian influence in Iraq. Uh, But uh, I think um, that has not happened so far. It's true that we are just seven months apart and a lot has happened. But I think my first assessment is that uh, what we have seen is rather uh, continuity in uh, Iran's uh, extent and uh, uh, type of influence in Iraq, um, despite uh, not just the killing, but also we should remember the dire economic uh, situation in Iran, and also uh, COVID-19, which obviously added to the challenges of uh, Iran's implementation of its foreign policy in the region. Um, I think this policy of Iran of continuity uh, in the region is very much does not really apply only just to Iraq but very much to the whole region and the intent is clear is to send a message to the United States that nothing has changed and that despite the situation despite the difficult economic situation despite the killing um, and despite the challenges faced by the country on all fronts um, including uh, the US sanctions and the drop in oil prices and all of that uh, Iran is now backing off and is not uh, changing its policy in the region. Uh, what we have seen in Iraq has been, over the past few months, a number of very uh, senior officials visiting the country uh, at very crucial times, uh, such as, for instance, when uh, the decision over the new prime minister was going to be made, and we have seen a, a very different range of uh, officials going to the country, from the supreme, uh, the Secretary of the Supreme National Security Council, Shafani, to the new heads of the post forces, is, uh, Ismail Kani, uh, who traveled to Iraq at least twice uh, since he was appointed. Um, I think um, there have been a lot of speculations, especially after Kani's visit, uh, that uh, as uh, uh, Jessica was mentioning, he uh, might be perceived as uh, less influential, as uh, basically uh, not up to the task and not filling the gap of uh, the position that uh, Wassim Soleimani was filling uh, in uh, relations and uh, in networks in Iraq. Um, And I think there were a number of reasons for which this speculation uh, started to spread over the past few months, including the fact that when he met uh, the Iran forces in Iraq, uh, the groups of the PMF, which are aligned with Iran, um, basically he, did not distribute uh, the cash handouts that he would normally distribute, but rather he distributed silver rings. uh, A demonstration of the fact that uh, obviously, Iran is not doing well economically and has to resort to different resources uh, to pay uh, their uh, proxies. Uh, The other uh, argument to support the fact that uh, uh, Qani is not as influential as Soleimani was the fact that uh, um, yes, it's true that Al-Zurfi was not appointed as the Prime Minister, but uh, Mustafa al is also not really an Iran friend and uh, has been chosen as the PM, even if it's not openly pro iranian which is a diversion from the past. And uh, one other element was, for instance, the fact that uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, uh, the Sayyidun leader, did not meet uh, Khani during his last visit. This obviously adds to the fact, um, as Jessica mentioned, that He is perceived as not having the same level of network influence connections, but also he does not speak the language and he used to cover different portfolio uh, before, uh, looking mainly at the Eastern border of Iran, so Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia, therefore with more limited connection and knowledge of the area compared to Soleimani. Um, I think the other speculation that was raised uh, over the past few months is that the policy of Iran in Iraq has generally been shifted in terms of who controls it and whereas before when Soleimani was still alive it was in the hands of the Rots forces it shifted into the hands of uh, different center of powers normally excluded from it such as the presidency the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Intelligence and I think the main evidence that is being used to support this argument is the speculation that the Iranian ambassador in Iraq has been having more meetings with the Iraqi representative over the past few months than at any time since he has been in this post since 2017. And I think while this might be true, it is also important to contextualize and stress that the Iranian ambassador in Iraq has a background of member of the RGC for 35 years and senior commander of the World's Forces. He probably has been appointed as ambassador there for this precise reason and was already very much considered as active and influential before the killing of Soleimani. All this to say that I personally think that a moving calculation and means of influence, it might be possible, but at the moment there is not enough evidence arguing in support of this thesis. Uh, Rather, I think the argument of continuity in Iran's foreign policy in Iraq, as well as in the rest of the region seems to be the strongest. Um, Just one final thought about what uh, might actually change Iran's calculation in Iran. I think, again, this builds on some of the points that Jessica made in the paper. Uh, Well, one is definitely the the economic situation of Iran. Um, We have seen, obviously, that because of COVID, there has been a contraction of uh, the Iranian GDP. But it's very important to remember that Iraq is not only a source of spending and investment from the Iranian side, it's actually mainly a source of income uh, through illicit and illicit trade and uh, uh, economic engagement. And one of the arguments made in the paper is that sanctions have made Iran more reliant on armed groups because they are cheaper to deploy, because they provide a source of income indirectly as they are more intertwined into the economic um, uh, levers of influence uh, in the country. And I think I would go one step beyond, I would say, that sanctions make Iran more reliant on bordering uh, countries' economy more in general, uh, particularly when it comes to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, We have seen this trend since 2018 when U.S. sanctions have been reimposed. We have seen the panic from the Iranian side uh, when COVID started, and borders have been closed with Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that was a particularly challenging time from the Iranian side. And I think the reliance of Iran on the Iraqi economy has been stressed quite a number of times in very high level visits, including when the Prime Minister Akademi has visited Iran uh, very recently, and the discussion very much focused on bilateral trade, stressing once again the goal of the two countries to reach the 20, uh, 20, billion uh, dollars bilateral trade, uh, which is, I think, up uh, from the 12 billion, which is currently the figure. And the discussion, uh, even if security and COVID and all of that was present, uh, was obviously very much focused on trade and the need for that to, to improve. Um, so I guess my point on this front is that the more reliant Iran is on trade and income from Iraq, the more likely it is. Uh, to prioritize this as a file, even if and when it is stretched because of the dire economic situation. So I think that is going to be a a factor in affecting the Iranian policy in the country. The second element, which uh, does not come as a surprise, of course, is the US policy towards Iran. Uh, We have an electoral campaign, uh, I think, in the US right now, despite uh, Trump's tweet uh, this afternoon. Uh, and there is a tendency from the Iranian side to now muddle through until November uh, to see what happens with the elections and to uh, make a new assessment of the options available thereafter when it comes to uh, their strategy, depending on what uh, happens with the US policy in the Middle East and towards Iran in general. So I think uh, that will reflect very much on the Iranian calculation, and obviously, much will also depend on the. Uh, outcome of the strategic dialogue, and more generally on ties between Iraq and the United States as a result of Kadimi's policy, uh, which obviously is going to be an important factor to watch. Um, the final thing I would mention, and again, this builds very much on the paper, is the importance of relations between uh, Iraqi Shias and Iran as a factor in uh, the term and affecting the Iranian policy in the region. Um, we have seen after the killing of uh, Abu uh, Mahdi Al um, that uh, there has been a, a complication in terms of cohesion, command and control, uh, competition within PMF units, uh, and obviously the disconnect between the shrine units and the other units, um, and I think, This is something that needs to be watched moving forward in terms of what what it means in terms of legitimacy of the PMF, Uh, uh, given that so much of the legitimacy was due not only to the fact that they were fighting against uh, Daesh, but also because of the fatwa that was issued and the support that was uh, given by Sistani. So I think that would be something to watch, and depending on what happens on that front, um, the Iranian influence and trends uh, with regard to the PMF groups might increase or diminish over the next few months or years. Um, and it's something that I think it's very uh, unpredictable at the moment. And the other element, obviously, in this sense is that the more uh, Iran might see uh, the legitimacy weaken when it comes to their armed groups, the more they might wish to see uh, and deploy tools to improve their legitimacy, such, such as, for instance, uh, the reemergence of Daesh as a justification or argument to uh, be present there to support these groups. Or even uh, more recently, as we have seen, the provision of services or the health crisis uh, uh, caused by COVID-19. So I think this is going to be something that Iran is going to be uh, doing more, uh, especially if the legitimacy of the PMF is going to be widened. Um, The last point is obviously the concern from the Iranian elites on the weakened uh, aspects of the soft power so uh, what jessica was mentioning in terms of favorable uh, views towards iran is something that the iranians are watching very carefully and it's concerning from their point of view I and mean, jumping down from 70 percent of uh, favorable views in 2016 to something like 15 percent uh, in 2019 is definitely not something that the iranians were anticipating or Uh, they are not really happy about it. Um, The the question is how they are going to tackle this issue. And I think it's probably, I would argue that this is probably the most challenging uh, task from the Iranian side. Um, When we talk about smart power, I think uh, the hard power and the the ways in which Iran has been able to maintain its influence uh, on that front have been easier. Whereas uh, we could argue that on the soft power, it has probably uh, failed so far. So whether it's, it's going to be managed um, in a different way moving forward is a, is a question, is an important question to, to raise and whether they will succeed in, uh, in uh, also uh, addressing the weak soft power that they have in Iraq is also something that needs to be monitored uh, moving forward. I'm conscious there is much more to say, uh, but I will stop here
0: and happy to expand at any point during the Q&A. Uh, Over to you, Gonche. Thank you so much, Anise, for building on some of Jess's uh, arguments. And thank you, Jess, for walking us through um, your paper. I'll now turn over to the questions, but before I do, I will take advantage of my chairing privileges by asking the first question. Um, And this is a question for Anise, but Jessica has also mentioned some of these uh, points in her paper. Um, The effect of sanctions on Iran's involvement uh, in Iran Um, Over the past two years, Iran has had to scale back financially. um, But Jessica mentions that the sanctions have increased Iran's incentives to support its allied paramilitary partners. Do you think that if there were a significant change in US policy toward Iran, for example, jettisoning the maximum pressure campaign, do you think it would change uh, Iran's regional strategy and its transnational entanglements or do you think that this security doctrines Um, to ingrain, to um, institutionalize, to to alter, just over, for example, if we consider the U.S. elections coming up and a possible change in direction?
2: Thanks, Gunji. It's a great question. I think I think from my perspective, the reliance of Iran on uh, proxies and more general on non-conventional capabilities is, is deep-rooted, uh, It's part of its forward defense policy and strategy, uh, has been maintained for years and has not been just raised now that we are talking about maximum pressure campaign. So it's very difficult to say that with the uh, you know, unraveling of the maximum pressure campaign, we would see a weakening of the Iranian support towards this group. However, I think what we have seen since especially May 2019 has been an intensification of reliance in terms of operations uh, from the Iranian side, from these groups. Uh, One reason is obviously the plausible deniability that Iran uses in these uh, occasions. Uh, Everybody talks about the fact that neither side, nor the US nor Iran wants an open confrontation, and therefore these kind of tools uh, are, the best that Iran can use to both uh, target uh, the intended uh, actor, but also at the same time, uh, diminish the risk of an open confrontation. So I guess in terms of reliance, in terms of uh, targeting and confrontation, and also I would say in terms of reliance of Iran, from the Iranian side, there has been a prioritization of Iraq as the line of confrontation uh, with the United States. That has been, case especially from january onward for obvious reasons but already we have seen since august 2019 besides what was happening in the gulf iraq was really there has been really the front line of the confrontation with the united states i think we would not see a kind of uh line of confrontation anymore so we would be still talking about uh, reliance on proxies. We would still uh, be talking about strong connections with the PMF groups, uh, which have been Iran backed since uh, 2006, 2007, um, and especially since 2013, 14, uh, with the uh, fight against Daesh. But I think in terms of views of these groups uh, to confront the United States, I think that has been a phenomenon that has been particularly acute over the, the past few months. I hope that addresses the question.
0: Thank you very much, that does, thank you. So I'll turn to the first question here. Um, Either one can answer it, it depends on um, whoever's more comfortable. How weary is Iran in your opinion of Shia militant groups in Iraq, outside of the PMU network in terms of their ability to undermine the PMU's hard-won state actor status?
1: Um, I guess I'll uh, tackle that one, and I saw that that question is from Inna, and Inna is herself an expert on the, the PMS in Iraq. Um, so, uh, I mean, my response would be that it doesn't take these kind of rogue groups that are not within the official um, umbrella of the PMU to kind of fracture the the movement, because um even those groups that are within the the government uh, have have shown that they're not under the control of their of the of the central government and that they respond to their own commanders so uh, certainly i think that iran i mean the question of how beholden individual um pmfs are to iran the ones that we know to have iranian backing the prominent ones like um Qata'a ibn Hezbollah and al-Haq and then um, the Imam Ali um, brigades and um, the ones that 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 are within the government or were within the Fatah alliance are, are certainly uh, themselves fracturing so I don't know whether it's, it's really, I mean how responsive they are to Iran, um, Iranian leadership and to the Quds Force or other individuals with the IRGC um, is also, <laughs> it, it, in, in a sense this works in Iran's favour because it's a plausible deniability and when attacks occur Iran has long um, been able to say well it wasn't under our command and, and we have nothing to do with that, um, clearly there are some groups that respond more directly than others um, but that's all I can say really.
0: Okay, thank you, Anissa. Do you have any views on this question, or we'll move on to the next? Can you unmute? Can you unmute yourself, please? Sorry.
2: Um, so I wouldn't talk about wary uh, when it comes to the Iranian view towards this group. Obviously, the first the first question to ask and address, you know, you know better than I do, is uh, whether these groups are you know, front groups for the already existing one, the Qatai Bezbollah, Assad al-Haq and others. Um, And this question has not been fully addressed. Uh, But I think from the Iranian side, uh, they don't necessarily view it as a threat, that's my sense. Um, There has not been public criticism or condemnation of uh, these groups, uh, at least to my knowledge. It's true that, as I said before, Iran does not want an open confrontation with the United States. It wants to target the US interest to increase its leverage in the negotiation stage, especially uh, following November 2020. But I think my sense is that they also view this um, provocation, if you wish, as a way to signal uh, the United States that, their strategy, both the maximum pressure campaign, but also the assassination, the targeted assassination have not been successful. Uh, and therefore, uh, rather than providing more stability from uh, the uh, Iraqi front more uh, cohesion in terms of uh, Iraq's policy and alignment with the United States what has created is more chaos and more unpredictability and uh, multiplicity of actors and uh, uh, you know, if I, if you like, uh, uh, even more challenging uh, task in terms of uh, identifying who is responsible for what, and therefore to bring uh, people to uh, uh, to justice or to diminish their uh, threat to U.S. and allies interests in Iraq.
0: Okay. Thank you. So the report argues that the assassination of Soleimani has shifted popular perceptions on Iran's role. For instance, Iraqi parliaments vote to expel US troops and changing South policies and stopping the support for protests. I think this change was a temporary and short-lived phenomenon. Now, Iraqi politicians do not speak of US withdrawal from Iraq anymore. And regarding sad the change has already happened, had already happened following his meeting with Soleimani in Najaf in November two thousand nineteen. Any views on that uh, observation?
1: Sorry, I'm just having a look at the question. Um, so, uh, um, sorry. So the um, in terms of uh, trying uh, popular opinion to expel U.S. troops. Um, so I think that the uh, the assassination was definitely a catalyst for for Sadr, and um, I mean people have been had been watching the Sadrists very carefully as being um, the main kind of decisive force in the protests because uh, Sadr had come out initially in favour of um, supporting the protesters, and then it, it, after the assassination um, he kind of publicly. Um, shifted position, and um, kind of aligned with the, the pro-Iranian uh, PMS, and uh, stopped to sub- visibly support the protest movement. Subsequently, uh, he's been um, pro-the academy administration, and his, I mean, so th- there was some in- insight at the time that perhaps Asada's withdrawal of support for the protest movement risks making him an irrelevant political force in Iraq and i think that is he has always been so um erratic in his um in his political current or but he certainly hasn't lost relevance and i mean i think that uh, recently we've seen the renewed protests in Sadr city um and that is interesting because uh they're complaining about poor services and um Uh, and uh, some of them are complaining about Iran as well, uh, whilst Sadr himself is backing uh, the Qadmi administration. So, I don't, uh, I mean, it may have been that he had already, um, he had already uh, discussed a a change of position, but I certainly think that the uh, assassinations were a catalyst for his public change of position. Um, Yeah, sorry, I don't know if I've addressed all the
0: he, um, we'll move on to the next question. Um, any thoughts on the assassination of Hisham al-Hashimi and its implications reverberations? Has it had an impact on the Iraqi public opinion toward Iran?
1: Yeah, I, um, yeah, I find this, as many people do, I find this extremely painful to talk about. And uh, he, he um, yeah, it's a kind of personal note. I didn't really know him. I only, I met him once. I, I interviewed him. Um, As everybody has said, he was extremely generous with his time to outsiders. He lived it. He he was incredibly courageous and um, he was the kind of person that Iraq needs to bring the changes that Iraq needs. Um, uh, In terms of how it's impacted on Iraqi public opinion. So again, like I spoke about the polls and it's valuable looking at polls. I don't think, he, Hisham al-Hashimi was very well known within the circle that he operated and he had a lot of followers amongst the protesters but the protesters themselves are a diverse bunch and they include um, some who are sadarists who are kind of ambivalent on uh, you know some who are very anti-US, some who are pro-Iranian and, and, uh, and so like within the protest m- movement alone I'm not sure that, uh, that all of them have been uh, impacted by Hisham's death um, and certainly within the wider public. I don't know really, I, I mean, my suspicion is that it may not have made as much difference as it really should have done um, because he was an inspirational person. So,
0: Thank you, Jess. Um... Next question is about the Hikmah Group. Um, how do you think? What do you think about the relationship between the Hikmah Group, led by Ahmad Hakim, and Iran? Does Iran consider Ahmad as a potential agent for Iran?
1: So I think so. Again, this kind of strays into the realm of intelligence that I don't have. But I think that since um, Ahmad, uh, you know, the the background of the the movement. Skiri Iski um, is in Iran, you know, it was the original party, um, the Iraqi party, through which um, Iraqi activism grew in, in opposition. Um obviously subsequently Ahmad made the conscious decision to break away from Skiri and to, to fi- found his own movement. And um and that was obviously an attempt to Iraqify the movement and make it much more appealing to Iraqi nationals. Um and he's taken his own course uh, and the the Badr, Badr Organization and Hadir Amari have gone their direction um and they are more obviously still right aligned with iran but i think that iran still you know would like to bring uh um Ahmad and the back movement back into the fold in, in a way or at least to court their uh, appeal and um of course the hakim family has a long has a you know a, a base in iran as well um it's a very well clerical fam- known clerical family so there are still connections um I don't know how much success we will have on that front. Okay. I don't, maybe Anisa has something to add to that.
2: No, I think you addressed the question very well, and I, I agree with your point. I think just one point I would make is uh, the relationship between Iran and Amar is just one example of the variety of uh, the relations that Iran has uh, throughout the country. And, This is replicated across the region, I mean if you look at Afghanistan, uh, I would would see exactly the same kind of depth and reach uh, across the country. Um, I think it's betting on different uh, horses and uh, Trying to invest in different actors depending on the situation to be able to play to its favor, depending on what is the situation on the ground and what happens both at the domestic level and the international level. So, even if it's not a strategic uh, connection, it's something that Iran is in, investing in the, in, the, uh, in the longer term. And uh, depending on uh, what happens, uh, it will increase or decrease its support for this
0: act. Thanks, Alisa. Um, next question is um, relates to the pandemic will covid-19 mark the end game for iraq syria and lebanon's mass popular uprisings are each of iraq syria and yemen fragile failing or failed states
1: okay well this is an interesting question for me and uh, i mean i guess i'll take the it's a very kind of ir question but uh, I, I'll take the second part of it first. So, are they failing or fa- fragile, failing, failed states? And really, that it depends on your definition. And there are all kinds of normative um, values that are attached to categorizing states as as fragile, failing, or failed. I would say in this case actually I like different definition and uh, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't exactly word for word remember but it essentially is that a failing state or a fragile state is one that is unable to um provide adequate services for its citizens so it does in that respect put the onus onto um people and citizens and, uh, and a state that cannot do that is a is a fragile or failing state and all of those states are in that position so I'd just say yes on that front. Um, as for the COVID nineteen, the pandemic, um, it's certainly—I can't really speak for Syria and Lebanon, but in Iraq, it certainly—it um, it has obviously had a massive effect, and it's—it's um, it's kind of, you know, initially it seemed that. Uh, it has played in the favour of um, all of those groups who have wanted to um, put a stop to the protests. Um, it's been a justification for for not gathering. Um, Latterly, there has been a renewal of protests, and um, I certainly don't think it's the end of it. I, I don't think you know. It is. uh, It's changed lives, but it hasn't changed the will of people to make changes. And uh, so, in Iraq's case, no, I don't think so. I think it has um, put a a a break, a pause, but it's certainly not the end of the story.
2: Anissa, do you have any? Yeah, just very quickly. I think. I think. Yeah, I just wanted to echo again, Jessica. Uh, we have seen the reprisal of a demonstration in Iraq uh, over the past few weeks already, so we cannot really talk about an end of the popular uprising. Actually, in Lebanon, uh, we have seen a reprisal and even a worsening of the uprisings because of COVID and the impact that it has had uh, besides everything else on the Lebanon economy. So I think, yes, we have seen a pause in the demonstration, obviously, for health uh, concerns and consideration, but... Uh, uh, we are likely to see, especially if the grievances of the demonstrators are not going to be addressed, which seems to be the case, even uh, uh, despite uh, the new government. Uh, it's at least going to take a long, a long time for all these grievances to be addressed, uh, and definitely it's going to be a tall order for the prime minister to do that. But I think for the time being, it seems that uh, the demonstrators are not satisfied with uh, the with, uh, The little that has been done, uh, such as the resignation of the previous uh, prime minister and uh, nothing much more. Uh, They're asking for accountability and uh, they're asking for justice for the protesters who have been killed. Um, I think all of this is building up uh, further rather than disappearing. So I don't think that the uh, the unhappiness and discontent towards uh, the government and the public uh, Authorities is is gone away, and I think it's just going to be further increase. Actually,
1: I actually I just wanted to come back to um, one of the previous questions that I didn't fully answer. But so there was a comment that um, the uh, Iraqi politicians aren't talking about U.S. withdrawal from Iraq anymore. Um, I mean I don't know if that is true, uh, in that um, the US is currently engaged in discussions on, on the drawdown of troops and I mean, it's not clear exactly how many people actually have uh, left, how many troops have draw- withdrawn, so I think that at the beginning of the year there were like 5,200, um, the US started handing over bases and has said that it has taken some people out. but. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't uh, gone away as an issue by any means and every time, you know, there are renewed attacks um, and retaliations um, on US bases and, and when the US re- retaliates, it, it serves a, as a reminder and a, and a, a source of pressure uh, on uh, the Iraqi parliament to justify the presence of US troops, so I certainly think that that is a live issue still.
0: Thanks, Jessica. Um, I have another question and it reminds me of an article that I read uh, this morning in the uh, New York Times. Um, I'll read the question first. Um, I don't know if you've read the article or not. It's called Inside the Iraqi Kleptocracy and it's by Robert F. Worth Um, and it sort of uh, touches on some of the points in this question. So the question is that there are 45 private and Islamic banks in Iraq, and the Iraqi central bank is selling dollars uh, to these, which are ultimately siphoned off and used by Iran via Lebanon. Anti-money isn't working, and Iran is using Iraq as a a market. Um, Don't you think that US policy is actually helping Iran, particularly when it comes to the dollars that are sent to uh, Iraq
1: from the US? that's so, yes a really interesting question observation and I think you know in this this is my caveat in this report um I didn't look at the, the kind of the economic side of it so much you know soft power in its original guise didn't include economic uh, dimensions and I looked um and smart power equally is kind of more thought of as the combination between military and um like, uh, public diplomacy. Um, so I didn't look at that so much but I certainly think that um, that I mean a US policy against Iran has has on so many fronts been counterproductive and in terms of sanctions um, within Iran itself I, I certainly um, believe the claims that it has um, strengthened the black market which is controlled by the ROGC and um, and in fact like kinda counterproductive effect in terms of aggravating Iran in Iraq. Um with respect particularly to the um Islamic banks. Yeah, that was I mean, okay, I have to say when I was going through the literature on um Iranian presence, banking um did come up a lot. Um and I'm sure that it has been a means of sanctions busting um, that, that really the U.S. has very little handle over. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to kind of comment okay. in particular on those.
0: Sure. Um, I've got another question for you, Jessica. Um, defining the concept of non-interference in domestic affairs seems to be highly debatable, particularly in a country like Iraq. In the same way that Iranian cultural activities and relations with political parties are construed as interference, so too could Western support for the protest movement. Is there a way to adequately address tensions in the concept, relating to the concept of non-interference? Mm-hmm. What are the boundaries?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Again, good question. Thanks, Ali. Um, so, uh, yes, and and actually in in my remarks, I, d- I wasn't kind of uh, strict enough in making the distinction, but of course intervention, inter, yeah, in Arabic like Tadakhul is intervention or interference and um, uh, it, it can be positive or negative, um, I mean the most obvious distinction is military, um, but of course in Iran's case it's not direct and for the most part it's done, whether you call them, clock client or proxy organizations and I guess that is the main difference that um, the US presence is, the military presence is the US military presence, there's no arguing about it and um, in the the Iranian case their interference is um, indirect and therefore much more ambiguous and it's the air of ambiguity that is also so kind of It's the fact that um, diplomacy is conducted in private and that um, it's a strength in the sense that that is also a function of uh, good relations between Iran and Iraq that that the U.S. just doesn't have. And I realize it's a really gray, murky area, but when it comes to uh, accountability, um, I I think it's certainly the case that uh, Western the U.S., the, the U.K plays more by the rules of adhering to um, the right protocol. Whereas I think it's easier for Iran to kind of bypass that um, because of the nature of the, the connections.
0: Okay, thank you. So the next question is about Iraq's um, new Prime Minister Kadimi. And I'd like to make this question two pronged so that Aniseh could could reflect on it as well. Um, So I'll begin the question by asking, um, or uh, bringing up the fact that on the 25th of June, um, Khadimi launched a raid on Iran-aligned militia. And there is a question of whether the prime minister was right to go after uh, Iranian proxies um, and whether he would ultimately face... Iran's wrath later on. So Anissa, said, I'd like you to reflect on that part of the question. And the second part of the question is here by an audience uh, member, which is what are the perception of the protesters on the Khadimi uh, uh, administration? Is it positive or negative? Um, and if positive, um, to what extent and, and in what capacity? Yeah, OK. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Gunche. It's a great question. I mean, there are a lot of
2: uh, questions about the relationship within and the views from Tehran on uh, um. As I mentioned before, he, he was definitely not the first choice uh, from the Iranian point of view, but I, I, I think that it's still perceived as he could represent an opportunity from Tehran. He is viewed as someone that is very experienced in the game of balance of power and could have the potential to ease the U.S. iran competition in Iraq or even maybe to be a mediator between the two sides. Uh, Obviously, as I mentioned before, lots will depend on what his policy will actually be, uh, the outcome of the strategic dialogue, and also especially, uh, which is hinting to the point that you made on the, right right on uh, the uh, Cade members, uh, on what he is going to do when, he's talking about the unity of security forces, uh, but it's not clear how he's going to go about it. Uh, I think for now he has been trying to balance his, uh, his attempt to to uh, not antagonize the PMF. He visited the headquarters. Uh, he's basically wanted to send a message that he's not going to undermine it, but obviously the right, uh, you know, sent a clear message also to the Iranians, uh, but also especially to the United States that he's not going to accept the um, the confrontation and the attacks conducted by groups as, such as Qatar uh, on US interests and personnel. So I think much will depend in the end as the outcome represented uh, a, a win solution from the Iranian side. Uh, Indian. the end, I think uh, the Iranians really didn't um, uh, shift into a negative perception towards Kadimi because of that. As we have seen, there has been a visit from him uh, in Iran, he has met with uh, different uh, officials, including the Supreme Leader. Uh, so I think that is already a sign that Iran is not really shutting the door to the Prime Minister. Um, but I think it, you know, it's definitely a complicated relations and much will depend on uh, the Prime Minister's ability to play a balancing role between the United States and Iran and how he's going to go about it.
0: Okay. Great. Thank you. And, and Jess, um, what is the perception of the protesters?
1: On, uh, do they hope? Yeah, I mean, so I would not claim to talk on behalf of the protesters, but um, I mean, actually, uh, just as an insight, we had a um, event uh, last week in which we had some participation of, from protesters from different sides of um, the spectrum, and that, that, I mean, it really reflected that it is it, it it is a disparate movement. You know, there are some common or broadly common goals. Um, and the anti-Iranian sentiment is certainly um, one one of the prominent ones. But as for the kazmi administration, I mean, I still think that like a lot of the demonstrators are not really overly political, or or I mean, they're, it's a political mo it's a political expression, but they're not politically organized, and they really are still very opposed, to kind of engaging in any way in the political system, and that's their strength and their weakness. I mean, they have. Being able to impact on uh, the the kind of which candidates are acceptable for the the prime minister, but they really, you know, even though so the um and the Zardafi the previous candidate was kept complaining, you know, that he's trying to bring these protesters on board and they're having none of it. And the protesters are like, well, we don't want to be part of this corrupt system because we know how it goes. You know, you're drawn in and now and then you're you, you know you're co-opted in one way or the other. And it's kind of impossible to escape from it so I mean I think that's reflected in in a lot of the responses amongst protesters to Kadami and it's not a personal objection Um, it's more a comment on the fact that he doesn't I mean how can he they say um, possibly break down this system Um, I mean he's still he is in as much as it's possible to say that he's in his honeymoon period, <laughs> and, I mean, it kind of sounds ridiculous in the Iraqi context. But um, I mean, there's still uh, all across the board, the protesters, the US, Iran, Saudi Arabia, everybody is still waiting kind of to see how it comes down. You know, they're sussing out their positions, trying to figure out who is actually going to back him at the end of the day, um, what he can really enforce. Um, And I think that if it seems that he can enforce what he's trying to do, then he will get more support from a chunk of the protesters.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And the last question is about Iraqi Kurdistan, um, an important part of Iraq, Uh, the KRG plays a significant role in Iraqi politics with specific foreign policy, uh, with a specific foreign policy agenda, but the report um, doesn't have any recommendations specifically about the Kurds and the regional government. Is that something to be explored or something that you'd like to reflect on? Yeah,
1: um, okay, well, yes, I'm sorry. It's a separate sorry. topic,
0: but it's a separate theme. Yeah. Do you think I, that yeah, intertwines so-
1: in any way? I do think so. I mean, I did mention that um, it's certainly the case that the, the KRG is a vital part of Iraq and it wasn't supposed to be a slight in any way. It's more a reflection of the fact that it was uh, supposed to be a 6,000 word report. In fact, it was more like 7,000 and um, it was more the uh, a case of... Um, So obviously, Iran has played a long-standing mediation role between the uh, the KDP and the PUK, and um, you know is kind of has a stronger link with the PUK. And and lately, uh, I understand that the 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 debate has been kind of how do the Kurds negotiate pressure on them to uh, reduce trade with with Iran? But it didn't. In terms of cultural influence, it, it did the kind of the gist of the report was more like looking at how cultural influence and identity politics um are expressed by iran in, in iraq and um it tended to focus on uh shia cultural outlets so uh yeah that's the honest answer okay
0: uh great so i think um we're pretty much done um i unless any say if you have any closing remarks or jessica If you're good, um, I'd like to thank uh, the speakers. I'd like to thank the audience uh, members for their questions. Um, It's been a very meaningful discussion and um, Thank you for your insights into uh, the prospects for an independent and and, uh, prosperous Iraq, hopefully in the future. But um, anyway, take care, everybody. And thank you again. Thank you.